hello hello welcome to another episode of the intangible podcast and this week and today we are joined by two very very special guests who will introduce themselves shortly but first i just wanted to mention that this is actually we are currently in preservation week so as you may or may not know april 24th marks the beginning of preservation week and i hope during this preservation week you can go out and help preserve and do anything that you've heard in the past episodes and and whether you'll hear today, I hope that you'll be able to go help in your community and just help preserve because preservation of culture is such an important aspect of our society and something that we really should be doing more. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. And today we are joined by Jana D'Ambrosio, Thomas F. Peterson Conservator here at MIT Libraries in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Tara Huber, Conservation Associate in Winch Conservation Lab, working with Jana. And my and, pronouns are she, her. And mine are they, them. And I am very, very excited for this episode because for this episode, I actually got something in the mail from Tara and Jana, and I'm extremely excited to share with, with, the, with the listeners what I, what I got, and we'll be talking about that soon. But I think to start off, I mean, you already did introduce yourselves a little bit, but if you could just go a little bit more in depth into who you are and what really led you into this field of preservation, right? That would you like to go first, Tara? Sure. Um, I learned about conservation when I was an undergrad in art school at Tyler School of Art in Philadelphia. And um, I was majoring in painting and minoring in art history And in high school, I had really loved chemistry class a lot. And um, I learned about art conservation um, kind of towards the end of my uh, undergrad career. And at first I thought I was mostly interested in exploring painting conservation because I was a painter. Um, But as I dug deeper into the various uh, specialties, I discovered books and archives. And that was really, really exciting to me um, because I love the idea of it's like such, it's such a direct way to preserve culture. Conservation in general is, but I really, really, really loved the idea of preserving um, like knowledge in the written word form and also the physical, um, it's the tangible you know, version of knowledge is books and archives. Um, so that that's what drew me towards book conservation specifically. I didn't know you got started in paintings too. Yeah. Did you read the article? What, what did you read articles about painting conservation? I did. I I actually had an independent study with one of my um art history professors. And so I was reading some books about painting conservation, and then we would meet um, once a week about it. And, um, and it was all very interesting and everything. But once I learned about book conservation, I was totally (laughs) fell in love with books. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I got interested in conservation right out of right out of high school. Mm. And I had been sitting in my orthopedic Donna's office, and he had the 1989 copy of National Geographic's coverage, a story on the Sistine Chapel ceiling mural cleanings. And I just read that thing cover to cover. 
And, uh, and then I got really lucky. I went to undergraduate at University of Pittsburgh and I volunteered at the Carnegie Museum of Art. And I got a job as a volunteer on the Impressionist show. And the museum's volunteer office was just had a comprehensive holistic approach to inviting even a volunteer into their community. And they took us on a tour of the entire institute. If you haven't been to the, to the Carnegie uh, Museum of Art in Pittsburgh, you should go because it all, it's all connected. The art museum connects to the history museum. Anyways, they took us from the library uh, past the music hall, all the way down to the art conservation lab where I saw my first painting under the, illumin you know, the illumination of ir irradiated light, you know, black light. And I immediately walked up to the conservator and I said, I have got to work here. Mm -hmm. And so I volunteered and then slowly through the process of elimination, I was like, nope, don't want to be a painting conservator. I don't want to be a mural conservator. I don't want to do objects. But then when I saw books and Emily Dickinson's manuscripts, then I was like, this is for me. Yeah. I mean, what more could you ask, right? Finding a field you love and yeah, yeah both of you, that, that's great. And I also, I mean, I'd also like uh, just to, if you could talk a little bit about your work currently, right, at, at Wunsch Conservation Lab and what the lab is and what and what you work towards doing and what you, what your goals are, maybe like, uh, yeah, whatever you'd like to say about the lab, really. Sure. Our goal here in the Wunsch Conservation Lab is to support the library's mission and the institute's mission, which is always changing because time is always changing and MIT is the best aims to be the best right and they are always like okay we're going to walk the walk we're going to do the hard thing we're going to that's important to the world we're going to we're going to try and solve those challenges and so our job we directly link into the mission of the institute but to preserve knowledge so that's that's vast right yeah. so Tara and I preserve we work on preserving the tan the the um the books and manuscripts the collections the physical collections that are largely on camp stored on campus and that ranges from uh, single-handed treatment which is which is why conservators are so important because we can do a lot of versatile high level things like we can turn and conserve a 14th century manuscript and then we can go and figure out what belongs in a, in, a, in a pack that people will use to respond to emergencies, to then teaching someone how to make a, a sheet of papyrus in a class that professors would like to have augmented for their seminars, to um, figuring out what, how to make a, a book mount for an exhibit so that books can go on display. So wherever a book needs to be viewed or handled, we uh, ensure that that handling happens safely and we maintain all the storage spaces that those collections are in whether it's in the reading room temporarily or if it's in its long-term storage place and i think you touched on a very important point there right like in the past episodes and for most of this podcast we've been talking about the preservation of culture but in in itself what library preservation does and book preservation is also preserve knowledge right and that's equally if not more important right and they go hand in hand really culture and knowledge so right we yeah. also are research we also do research mm -hmm. so we research conservation treatments and the we also love to lock in our uh, which we'll talk about 
in the podcast, our projects, uh, if the institutes de dedicated to uh, environmental, mon I mean, um, environmental preservation, then we want to figure out ways we can build book cradles or something that's upcycling materials that would otherwise go into the dumpster. You know, how can we constantly look around us for solutions mm -hmm. to help preserve the collections without creating a lot of waste for the environment, for example. Yeah. And and I mean, I, I can't really wait any longer. I have to ask you about what you sent me. And to the, to the people listening to the podcast right now, I, these will be on the website. I'll take pictures of everything and um, they should be easily accessible next to the transcript of this video. So yeah, please let me know if you can't find them, but they, they should be there. So starting with, with this, I'll call this figure one for now. Um, <laughs> could you just talk about a little bit about what this is and what I should do with it? Yeah, you have to hold it up a little bit and it might be more than one thing. What do you got there? Which one so I, is have, that? I have these here. Oh yeah, you do have. Okay. So yeah, that's Tara can show you what that transforms into. So when all folded up, that transforms into this bin. Mm -hmm. And these bins are designed to fit into a standard size archival document box that we use for the majority of our collections. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the blurriness is throwing is hard to um, see. But it's, you know, storage is a huge part of preservation. Mm -hmm. And um, it's also a huge, um, you know, use of space. And so it's really, really important to, because space is at a premium, no matter what institution you're at. And, um, and also creating safe housings that are um, customized for the objects is important, but there's ways that you can um, treat something standard, like the standard size box, and then within the box, customize it for objects. So what we're trying to do is it's safer to have um, your storage containers all be the same size. Like if you have a big container next to a small one, next to a big one, you know, smaller ones can get shoved to the back and um, it's just, it's much easier to handle and to keep track of things if they're all in um, standard sizes. So we, maybe I should take the blur off, but let's see if this works. So within yeah, this box, unblur it. Unblur, yeah, this is silly. Yeah. Um, so the, the other item that you have is one of these pockets and we make them in a number of widths. And these were, correct me if I'm wrong, Jana, these were originally designed for tarot decks. That's right. Yes. MIT has the largest collection of independently, uh, independent artists. Created. Thank you. Yes, are they're like little? Uh, they're they're basically like um, unbound artist books, right? The tarot deck, okay. and so there's this huge, uh, this huge re, uh, interest, mm -hmm. and artists from around the world are making tarot decks, 
and they're they're there in these super small runs and they are going to disappear almost ephemeral until MIT collected them and a lot of these artists will now be in the Library of Congress you know that they, they will they will be will know that they existed and will know that their art existed and they're just gorgeous and so we had a blast having these these collections come in the lab a few years ago, right before the pandemic, we're like, well, how do we look at all these little tiny boxes that have other things that go along with them? How do we keep them all together? And so we thought, why don't we make little pockets for them to fit into in, the, in our doc? We call them doc boxes, but they're document boxes. Because the document box is kind of an easy way. It's like a nice size to kind of, you can pull it off the shelf. You, it's ergonomically not going to hurt you. It's, it holds enough archival materials. And so we wanted to just to give that challenge to ourselves. It also keeps ordering easy for our, our admin staff to just say, look, we're going to always order these same 10 sized boxes and then we'll work within them. So to, organizational technique as well. Right? right. And then we take it a step further. And we think, okay, what else does MIT like us to do? They like us to be operationally efficient. They like us to really respect the environment, of course, which we all want to do. And so we really challenge ourselves to stay away from, for example, like adhesives. So that bin, when you make it, will be entirely self-locking. It's going to lock into place and be super sturdy, and there will be no adhesives used. And we were inspired by a tarot box that we saw that came into the lab that we had to put together to put the the, the tarot deck in and we were just like what so if you when you come to visit the lab Nicholas or anyone you know that comes mm -hmm. to come by and wants a tour uh, hanging around the labs are all kinds of boxes from chocolate boxes um, to 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 tarot deck boxes that inspire us to to create the, these enclosures very cool. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll show a before and after of this. Yeah. Um, so yeah it'll be on, on the, hopefully I can get the after. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, we can show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we, we hope to, I think before the pandemic kind of slowed us down a bit. I mean, the pandemic slowed us all down a bit, but we, before the pandemic, we had, uh, we were, one of our goals is we, the library's goal is to be open, openly accessible. And so we want to do that too. So we created this, these boxes for ourselves. And then we find a way to share them openly and accessibly. So we put out the plans for them. And then we make them accessible by PDF so that they have alt text and they have information. And so we just, those are in our queue up next so that people can just download that information and use it themselves. And then we collaborate with a group called the HF group that actually fabricate them flat and then we put them together. And so they help us uh, refine our designs. Mm -hmm. And so that's just one of the things that we do to kind of uh, practice the, the visions of, of the director, Chris Bird and the senior leadership team here at the libraries to make things as openly as possible. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's amazing for, hopefully the, uh, the listener will be able to check that out. I'll, I'll put all the links in the description, but yeah, they'll, they'll be there. Yeah, great. So moving on to figure two, I guess you could call this. I, 
<laughs> I haven't I haven't exactly opened this yet and I don't really want to. I feel like I'm gonna no, break it. You are gonna break a thing. Go okay. on. Go on. Go. Get in there. So in here. I have multiple things. Ooh, this looks like some sandpaper. No. 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 It's one side smooth and one side's kind of fleshy. Yeah, yeah. Are you grossed out by touching animals <laughs> that are? Oh, no, not really. <laughs> Do you wear leather shoes? <laughs> that is a piece of parchment. That's another way to take an animal skin and process it. So if you've ever seen like a one of your relatives who were around maybe hundred years ago, their diplomas, mm -hmm. that's made out of parchment. So animal skin. Wow. Okay. So you've got all this is parchment. All this is parchment. No, one is parchment. Not this. Th this, right? That <laughs> is parchment. Yep. Uh, that might be paper. We sent you a piece of handmade paper. So what paper used to feel like every single sheet for hundreds of years. And uh, that's the parchment. That's yes. the parchment. Yep. Yep. That's the okay. parchment. I can't that's, tell. This is the handmade paper. Correct? That's hard. It's hard to tell. Yeah. This is the handmade paper. Yes, yes. It is pretty textured though, so I understand yeah. why um yeah. why it might feel sandpaper like. Yeah. And, and then, then I have these two left. Yeah, on the on the the one with the writing, the black black writing is Islamic uh, handmade paper. Wow. And the other one is a hand a, a fragment, a remnant of a handmade sheet of papyrus sheet wow that the students make here wow. and so we have a class of professors in the in the histories and humanities departments they come in their students come into a, a dark room that's all candlelit with not you know not flameless candles um <laughs> and they write with quills and they write with inks and they write on all different types of papers mm. from around the world to see what it feels like with a different writing implement and that's one of the ways they're introduced to wow. writing tech. So MIT's motto here is also men's at manis, learn by doing. So we love conservators because we we um, have to know how to make books to fix them. And so we we're bookmakers, bookbinders. Yeah. And now, honestly, one thing that I've been I I have this. Uh, I mean, actually, I was excited equally for all of them, but. This is this has intrigued me now. Oh wait, but wait before you get to the that. Okay. The, the other thing that's really important about what you know, we we've sent you these little these little mm -hmm. bits. Why did we send you the little snippets of the writing technologies, right? The traditional writing technologies. So before we picked up our cell phones to text and picked up the phone to call people or Zoom. You were handwriting letters. You were handwriting on paper, papyrus, and parchment. Mm -hmm. And a thousand years ago was the last big, huge shift in the surfaces that we write on, writing technology. You, we switched from papyrus to paper. Mm -hmm. And now we're living in the moment when that, that shift is happening. But now we're writing in the air. Like <laughs> our writing is going into a cloud. Yeah. Right, so that's enormous. We get to live through that. And the pandemic, I think, the events of the pandemic have catapulted that and just made it happen quicker. Where we walk down the halls here and there's file cabinets lining the hallways. 
But um, why did I bring this up is that the lab in order, the lab is also embracing in a kind of non-traditional kind of way, this openness, this desire to share what we have. And the Wunsch lab is just this rich resource of um, these sorts of supplies that we use to teach our, teach our teaching collection and the equipment that we use. And so the Wunsch lab is becoming um, historic artifacts where they're being accessioned into MIT's collections and you can find them. And so there'll be our teaching sets online. So the teachers and professors, anyone could see what we have here and maybe wanna come study it. Wow. So the, these containers you see above us, they have that, those papyrus bits in them, like all the components you need to make a sheet of papyrus. So if you came to us and you're like, Jana, we, I'm doing this project. Do you, do you have, I see, I went to your, I went to your, your archival entries and I saw you have this thing and, I, and, and you're the only place in, in, in this part of the world. And I'd love to come see it. We'd make that happen because MIT is open. We want to share and be accessible. And so that's one way that the Wunsch Lab can embrace. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does, and and that's really great because all all the every almost every episode that I've had has the one thing everyone has talked about has been the availability to education, right, and being able to learn. So, I mean, that's great having that resource. I hope everyone again visits and yeah. just more, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, this is a way they can visit without physically coming here too. You know, they can peruse our teaching collections. Mm -hmm. Of course. And now the letter locking. <laughs> Thank you for the letter locking. Am I correct? That's exactly right. We sent you a bunch of lock letters. So what would I do with this? Would I just kind of like force my way in? Right. So what we've done is we've sent Nicholas a bunch of uh, letter packets. So this lab also is leading the research in the rediscovery of how people sent letters without envelopes. Mm -hmm. So it's surprising. I mean, we can hardly believe it ourselves that the modern day gummed envelope that we use to send bills or letters wasn't invented and put into mass, mass production until the 1830s. Wow. So up until then, throughout all of time, different, different cultures around the world, people would fold up their papyrus, their parchment or their paper after they wrote a letter and they would fold it in all those different ways that we sent you. Mm -hmm. And some had more security built in them than others. Mm -hmm. So some were to keep uh, snoops, like uh, interceptors who might have, because there wasn't a control by postal service. And sometimes the letters are folded to, or also in addition to beautifully, like in, in a way, like, so when you receive them, the address, like the one you like, what's so, what's so cool about it? If you hold it up for your viewers. So I'll take a picture of this. This will be figure three. Okay. But I, what I, first off, I know all of them have this, but this red, I mean, and I think most of them do at least. Some do, yeah. Yeah, this, this red like almost design. And I, I like the, I mean, I guess it could be a square, but the diamond. It's a diamond. And why yeah. is it a diamond? You got it. That's exactly what we, we, um, we thought so too. It's because the address is written. The person who intended to send that, they turned that packet. They didn't keep it as a square, but they turned it to a diamond mm -hmm. orientation. And then they wrote the address. 
And so we do, we call that the, the Brienne diamond because we found three historic examples by three different individuals who after writing their letter, folded it up into a diamond shape and then addressed the packet. So that's like a distinctive style almost. like Exactly, a- it's, it's a distinctive letter locking style and that's exactly what we call it. So I'm, I'm gonna attempt to open this. <laughs> Go for it. See what's inside. Yeah, have fun. Oh, if I'm able to. I don't want to tear up the message either. Okay, I'm get I'm getting somewhere. Bear with me here. <laughs> so do I have to tear the, the the red? The red. Sometimes you do. Yeah. I mean, if you if you are a spy, you know how to get into some of the packages without anyone knowing. You you've got all these tricks your sleeve. Okay. But most people are trying to, 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 are wanting to receive their letters so they can just open them and read them. Like letters are meant to be opened and read. Mm-hmm. So first thing I see, I'm not, I'm not fully open. I haven't fully opened it, but it's okay. this, it's this eight, nine. It says eight here and nine here. Okay. Should I keep on going? I'll keep on going. Keep on going. Okay. Yeah. Now I see. Ooh, a lot gonna be like a map maybe of sorts maybe that's just the outside yeah you might have received one I think the one you're opening is an exploration in the how to teach so it's one of the earlier models that we made of the Brienne diamond that is has each step like each crease numbered and then the writing is in the panels so this is really, really cool. I'll, I'll take a picture of this inside. Really as well. pretty, yeah. The original is not like that, that inspired that letter. The writing is just written all in any available space on the letter, mm-hmm. on the letter sheet, the substrate. But we couldn't believe the beautiful, the panels that emerge, the designs when you open the lock letters. And so letter locking actually is a conservation-driven research project. So we don't read the words in the conservation lab is the way we don't read the books. We're reading the folds for letters and uh, the tears around the sealing, sealing wax. So the most important point we want to drive forward is that letter locking is one of the most fun ways to teach about, to teach conservation. Because what we're looking, when I first saw them about 20 years ago, there was these tears and creases and things, and they look like damage, but they're not. And they're they're not, they're intentional manipulations. They're they're what we now in our study call manipulations that take that what, what was a flat sheet of paper to become something else, a letter packet. And then another manifestation was the open letter, which preserve preserves these mountain and valley creases. And all that information can tell you about how secure somebody folded it or can tell you the crease, how to reverse engineer it and how they tore it open or how they may have refolded it to store it. And so we advocate that all of these manipulations that might not look pretty, especially in a photograph or in an exhibit case, because you just have all the lights playing off all the creases. Um, we advocate, you know, in the, in the conser- conservation of lock letters, you may want to think twice before you might humidify and flatten that sheet of paper or erase the panels that would have been like the address panels that have lots of dirt on them because they tell you something. 
Yeah. And, and so we, and, and even in our study, trying to invent the field as we've been traveling around these last 10 years, my colleague, Daniel Sarza Smith at King's College in London, we both were like coming at it from different angles via literary historian. And he reads the words for some periods of time. <laughs> He's like, wow, uh, the way that, for example, John Dunfold's letters his letter locking techniques are in are really in align with the way that he's writing the contents of those letters and his poetry style. They're very playful and and you know a little bit off the edge, you know, or or edgy, you know, like a little bit of a variation we only see with John Donne. And I couldn't see that because I'm obviously just looking at the creases and the folds and how I can preserve them. And he's saying, no, wow, this really there's an interconnection here. And so the more we started to travel around, we had the same feedback from different people saying, and we don't know what you're doing because all we thought people did was put that little red blob of adhesive on and seal their letters. We didn't understand, we can't read or see the folds. Mm -hmm. So it's been really fun to go around and teach people how to see the folds and all the other uh, manipulations and then they can't unsee them. So that's been a ton of fun and a wonderful way to teach people about conservation and the humanities or anything else you want to talk to them about because the minute they open the letter or or encounter an unopened this unopened letter packet they're they're now in your space uh they're not thinking about a grocery list or like they they're really thinking about this this challenge they have in front of them and then a conversation really does blossom Mm. what do you think tara about your encounter so far with with um, sort of some of the questions that Nicholas has been asking us. (laughs) Well, I was just thinking about um, what we were talking about, um, manipulations or perceived damage on on cultural objects and how, um, what a conservator brings to the table when looking at physical objects is looking at the materiality of the objects and um, like Jenna said, we aren't the subject experts of, for instance, what these letters say. Um, so we we are, however, the experts on the materials used at the time. And then also what materials are used and how that um, informs, um, you know, the the creator. So what I'm saying is that sometimes you can see something that is totally divorced of the materiality of what was created. So you could see that John Dunn's letters written, you know, on a screen or reproduced in a book elsewhere. But when you see the playfulness with which he folded that, and then um, even if something has been unfolded in the past, if you can see the um the staining patterns or the dirt patterns from handling over time sometimes in books you know i'll see the pages that have extra soiling from people they keep returning to that page and it's like maybe i'm not the expert in why someone keeps returning to that page and then i can talk to a curator i'm like i noticed that this page seems heavily used and then they'll take a look at it and then we'll have a discussion about it and so you can have this really cool, you know, dialogue between different specialties where it's like you each are bringing a different 
observation to the table. And then that all equals the full context um, of the creation of these cultural objects, which just, it gives you just a, a more fleshed out picture of, of what was happening, of the intention of the creator, of, you know, who the audience was when they were creating it. And that's like the really fun thing about conservation. And on top of that too, conservation uh, conservators are also also trained in we are trained in scientific imaging techniques so we learn how to take images that we you might see MIT providing in our digital first initiatives so that people can have digital access to content but conservators know how to take in addition to that scientific documentation and imaging that help you see the surfaces like the nooks and the crannies in the letters. So we are trained uh, or know what to look for when we ask for the types of imaging for reflective transformation imaging, which helps you see the topography of a surface uh, and all different light sources. So it's, we, once we have this, this conversation with curators and archivists, we can then say, oh, why don't we use these XYZ techniques to learn more that are non-invasive and non-destructive? So we really are learning uh, all these different holistic, like in a holistic way, all these different techniques of interrogating the object to figure out what it can, what intangible information is lurking in it that we, we just uh, is waiting for us to discover if we don't alter it and erase it forever. And if we uh, kind of preserve it and let it tell its own story, that being the artifact. Yeah, there, there's there's clearly so much you could learn about a person, a group, a culture, and just letter locking in general. I feel I feel like you don't really hear it that often in, pre in the field of preservation, but it's really something that should be there more, right? I, I, like, wow, this is this is amazing, and I'll put this on the website as well as the other um, the other ones that you sent me just to show the viewer the contrast, right? There's so many different types, sizes, shapes, colors. Oh, this one's really cool too. Yeah, I like this one. We have a website, um, letterlocking.org, brienne.org, and we have a YouTube channel, a letterlocking YouTube channel, which helps you. So if you wanna find that letter on YouTube, uh, you can look for the name of it and, uh, mm -hmm. cool. and follow along. Yeah, for sure. And that, and that, once again, that'll be in the description. And we do, we do only have five minutes left here. I know. So I know. What else would you like to talk about? So I, I think, I mean, is there anything else you, uh, here? I mean, there's a lot more here, but maybe, maybe I will ask about this now. If that, yeah. if that's. Oh. That is, um, so the letter locking is a part of a team called the Unlocking History Research Group. And right when we started to write about letter locking to kind of publish a paper, so you kind of publish all your ideas and get them nice and organized so that people can access what you think. We discussed, we, we were on a team that rediscovered a trunk of undelivered letters from that had been collected 300 years ago by a husband and wife postmaster postmistress mistress team in the hague and 600 of those letters remain unopened mm. and they're all letter locked and we were invited to be on this team and 
and we have never studied the unopened letter. And they really hold a, a lot of manipulations that kind of disappear when you open them, yeah. uh, that we can only guess towards when we study the crease pattern. And so we we put together a cross-discipline, cross-generational team, uh, international, to figure out, can we scan the letters using x-ray technology that's used usually for teeth, invented by a group in um, at Queen Mary in England. And could we take that and could students at MIT with our C-Sale uh, department figure out how to write an algorithm pipeline to virtually unfold the letters and read the folds, which was really, we were very curious about, and the words because they were written in iron containing content. And that trunk, really pushed us also because we studied the 2000 open letters and we studied their crease patterns. And it was a period of time that is between the surge in letter locking in the 1500s with lots of spies and intricate letter locking techniques, high security and the gummed envelope. And you see this flap technology emerge, which on a letter, you see this on an envelope, modern day envelope, you've got this flappy bit, right? That you, you yeah. stick the letter into the container, you close the top. We call that a lock, but to be continued. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, the, so the, in studying that trunk and all the letters, and then the letters we had amassed and made models of, we started to categorize them. And this chart you're looking at is like the periodic chart of letter locking. And what that does is it creates metadata because we had major institutions starting to come to us and say, we want to start attaching our metadata for our, we want to understand lock letters and we want to put that metadata so that people can search our collections and start to study letter locking. So we had to create the little codes for, oh, you have that diamond shaped letter. What category does that fall into? when it's open and when it's closed. And so that we decided our intentions were, we, we, did, we wanted to pause on publishing the paper and figure out how to write uh, what we were writing so that it could be a resource for teaching and for study. And so we uh, met students here at MIT and they, um, they wrote an algorithm pipeline that virtually on, that open letters and that, article is openly accessible and that launched the field of letter locking about cool. two years ago and, th and this is going to be figure four on the website and thank you so much for coming on today it's it's honestly been one of my favorite episodes and i have all this to open and this will all be on the website and cool. both tara and Jana's and the winch conservation lab and letter locking all that information is going to be in the description so i really hope you guys check that out it's amazing amazing people amazing labs yeah. happy preservation week <laughs> yeah happy preservation week it's a huge week so do whatever you can to preserve in your community local help out and if you're ever in massachusetts i i really recommend the winch preservation lab and yeah. see all this amazing stuff write to your legislators you know become members of your cultural institutions and and go learn from your cultural heritage <laughs>